there are two kinds of people in the world. The first kind have to have the remote when they're watching the TV. The rest, eh, not so much. If you have people who are pointing at you right now, I think you know which one you are. There's also two kinds of people in the world. Those who have to drive wherever they go and those who are, eh, I can sit in the passenger seat. If people who are watching this with you are pointing at you, you know. See, those are symbols of power and control, but they're not the only ones we have in our world. We've got other symbols. Symbols like money. Symbols like a certain seat in a table at a meal or a meeting. Uh, the person who has to make the final decision on where we're going and, and the person who has to have the final answer in an argument. All of those are positions of power, places of power. And, and while you might not think that you're somebody who wrestles with wanting to or needing to be in power, our experiences over the last 12 months have revealed that, that it's a really uncomfortable feeling when we don't feel in power or in control. And part of the struggle of the past 12 or 13 months is that, that we didn't know what to do. We, di we didn't know where to turn. We didn't know how to feel when we didn't know where our power was coming from or when it would return. Today, we're going to talk about power and the struggle that it is for all of us. See, today we're concluding a series called When People Meet Jesus. Over the last six weeks, we've been walking through the biographies of Jesus, looking at the people that he encountered and what we can learn from them and Jesus that applies to our lives today. If you missed this series, we'd encourage you to go back and check out the previous messages. In addition to these Sunday messages, you've also been reading through the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John known as the Gospels, and looking at Jesus in his own words and seeking for ourselves to have an encounter with him. As I said, each week in this series, we've been looking at a person's encounter with Jesus. And today we're going to break a little bit of the rules. And instead of looking at a person's encounter, we're going to look at three people and their encounters with Jesus. And their names are Caiaphas, Barabbas, and Pilate. And from their encounters with Jesus, we're going to look at and examine this topic of power. If you've got our, our notes and you're taking notes at home, here's our big idea today. Power operates very differently in the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men. Power operates very differently in the kingdom of God and in the kingdoms of men. And today we're going to look at these men's stories, Caiaphas, Barabbas, and Pilate. And from their stories, we're going to learn three lessons about power from three bad guys. You see, every great story has got to have a bad guy. It's got to have a villain. And in the final week of Jesus, these three guys, they play that role. Today is known as Palm Sunday. That's why we have the palms here behind us. It was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem the final time. He was welcomed by crowds who were holding out palm branches and singing Hosanna. They welcomed him. 
the same way they would welcome a conquering king or military hero. This moment is filled with expectations of who Jesus is going to be and what he's going to do. And in these three guys, these three bad guys, we're going to see their expectations and their experiences of Jesus as well. So here's the first one, Caiaphas. Here's the lesson we learned from him. Caiaphas, who's the power broker, he shows the outcome of seeking to hold power through corrupt means. Caiaphas, who functions as a power broker in this story, he's going to show us what happens when you seek to hold power through corrupt means. Now, Caiaphas, when we meet him in the biographies of Jesus, he holds this role as high priest. Within the the nation of Israel, the, the ruling group was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a council of 71 priests led by the high priest. And they, they were not only responsible for leadership over the religious life of the Jews, but also much of the social and political life as well. And Caiaphas is serving as high priest when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday But Caiaphas is part of a family that holds power. Caiaphas's father-in-law, a man named Annas, was also high priest in the past. And over a number of years, the high priest role goes back and forth between Caiaphas and Annas. And in this relationship, Caiaphas, he may have the title of high priest, but Annas, he has the power. If you've ever seen the movie, The Godfather, one, two, or three, we're not going to debate over which is the best one here today. But to use the analogy, Annas was the Godfather. You know, he makes him an offer that he cannot refuse. Annas is the one with power, but Caiaphas is the one who has the title. And both of them are... Uh, avowed enemies of Jesus. Both of them are set on dealing with and fixing the problem that Jesus poses because Jesus has had some incredibly harsh and indicting words about Annas, Caiaphas, and their friends, the Sanhedrin. In the book of Matthew, chapter 23, Jesus lists out seven woes, seven accusations against the Pharisees and teachers of the law, reasons why they were not leaders worth following, worth emulating, worth being like. And, and at some point, these, these leaders decide that the problem of Jesus can only be dealt with by killing him. In the book of John, chapter 11, Caiaphas speaks about this. Here's what he says. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas believed that if Jesus was allowed to continue, that it would be to the detriment of their power and their nation. And and he says, hey, he needs to die. But what Caiaphas didn't know in the moment is he was prophesying, Jesus would one day die for all the people, just not in the way that Caiaphas expected. Caiaphas is there on the night of Jesus's arrest. That's Thursday night later on in Holy Week. And Caiaphas is involved in an illegal trial of Jesus. They they try Jesus at night, which was against their laws. And, And we see what happens in the book of Matthew as they bring false witnesses trying to find somebody who will say something about Jesus that they can actually use to try him and kill him. It says in Matthew 26 that those who'd arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. 
the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Other gospels say that when they, they kept bringing up these false witnesses and they were so bad that their stories didn't even align with each other. But finally, two who came forward, they came forward and they give an accusation against Jesus saying that he, he blasphemed. He, he, taught, he taught something that was false, that, that was false about God. Later on, we see Jesus interacting with Caiaphas. It says, the high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest, that's Caiaphas, said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Then the high priest tore his robes, which was a sign of angst and anger, and said, He has blasphemed. Why do you still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, He deserves death. That's what they've been working towards all along. It says, Then they spat in his face, his being Jesus, and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who was it that hit Caiaphas and his friends, they break their own laws. They go down the path of corruption so that they can hold on to power because Jesus is a threat to their power and their way of life. And for Caiaphas, what we see in this story is that the ends justify the means. What are the ends? Getting rid of Jesus bringing peace back, bringing stability back, holding on to power, those ends justify any means, even if they're corrupt, even if it means breaking the laws that Caiaphas and his friends flout and teach to other people, even if it means going down a corrupt, deceptive, evil path. In their mind, the ends justify the means. But the way of Caiaphas is incredibly different than the way of Jesus. This is why he was so harsh to speak about them and why he counseled his followers to not not walk down the path of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You see, for Jesus, the ends determine the means. For Caiaphas, the ends justify the means. But for Jesus, the ends determine the means. What Jesus is after determines how we get there. For Jesus, the ends and the means are both important. And in the book of Matthew, Matthew records a teaching that Jesus gives that speaks directly and contradictory to the way of Caiaphas. It says, Jesus called them, his disciples, over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They lorded over you as rulers, the Romans do. And those in high positions, like Caiaphas, act as tyrants, over them, evil, corrupt leaders. Jesus says, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus is offering a countercultural way of, of life, leadership, and power. The model of the Romans who were ruling the Jews was that leaders lorded power over those under them. The model they got from even their own religious leaders like Caiaphas is that you lorded your power over others and if forced, you used corrupt means to hold on to that power. But Jesus is teaching something very different. You see, according to the teaching of Jesus and according to the kingdom he's introducing, power comes through service. You want to be great? <laughs> then serve. You want to be first? Then be last. You want to be the greatest of all? Then be the servant of all. And 2,000 years later, we're still trying to wrap our heads around this. If, if you were to put on a conference or a, a web conference in this era on leadership, people would flock to that. If you wanted to write content about leadership, people would read that or watch that. But you put on a conference about being a servant, <laughs> there's going to be lots of empty seats. You put out a book about serving, it's not going to sell nearly as many copies. And even in the church, we're still struggling to learn this lesson. In, in recent years, we've seen influential leaders fall from grace because they forgot this truth. We've seen examples in the stories of people like Bill Hybels and Carl Lentz and Rabbi Zacharias, people who had incredible positions of power and influence, authority and leadership, only for us to discover later on that they began to think that being a leader was about being served rather than serving others. And they lost their, their leadership, their legacy, their influence, their opportunity because they thought that power was about being served rather than serving others. It's been said before, and it bears repeating, that if leadership is in your future and, and something that you aspire to, then you need to recognize the power of service. Because if serving is below you, leading is beyond you. In the way and the kingdom of Jesus, if serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. And if you want to have power in the kingdom of Jesus, it isn't about holding on to it through corrupt means. It's about serving others. That's the lesson we learn from Caiaphas. The second lesson we learn is from a guy named Barabbas. And Barabbas, who's the murderer in the story, he shows us the outcome of seeking to gain power through violent revolution. Barabbas is, is, is a person who's known as being a murderer, and he shows us what happens when you try to gain power through violence. N now, we're not introduced to Barabbas in the midst of these events where he murders. We, we only hear about that looking back, but in each of the Gospels that we've been reading through on the road to Easter, we learn just a little bit about who Barabbas is. And I want to show you this. In the book of Matthew, Chapter 27, we read this. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So first we know he's a prisoner and, and one who was notorious. In Mark chapter 15, we learn this. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels 
who had committed murder during the rebellion. So we learn from Matthew, he's a prisoner. We learn from Mark that he's a prisoner in prison with other people because they all committed murder during some rebellion. In the book of Luke, we see this. Take this man away, release Barabbas to us, they cry out. Barabbas had been thrown in prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. So we learn a little bit more. This rebellion that took place with other people where there was a murder. It happened in Jerusalem. That's why Barabbas is in prison. And then in the book of John, chapter 18, they shout back, not this man, Jesus, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. So through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we get this kind of full picture of who Barabbas is, that he's this revolutionary leader who was involved in a rebellion, who with other people had tried to overthrow the Romans. Somebody gets murdered along the way and all of them end up in the Roman prison. And that's where we meet Barabbas. He is a prisoner. And when Jesus is brought from Caiaphas and his corrupt trial to the Romans, because the Jews can't kill anybody, they need the Romans to bless it for them to put Jesus to death. There's an opportunity for an exchange, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. But, but, Barabbas is in prison when we meet him. And in many ways, Barabbas is who people wanted Jesus to be. He's the people's Messiah. If you've been reading along with us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then this week starting in John, what you've seen is that people expected Jesus to be a certain kind of Messiah. They expected him to overthrow the Romans who, as our friend Chris said last week in his message, were the next power in a long line, 600 years of powerful empires that had ruled over the Jews. The people wanted a Messiah. They were waiting for a promised one from God. And their expectation was that when that person finally showed up, he would lead a violent rebellion and overthrow the Romans. Well, that's what Barabbas tries to do. And so in many ways, Barabbas is the people's Messiah. He's doing what people thought Jesus would do <laughs> that Jesus never does. So Barabbas is in prison. He's basically the people's Messiah. But what happens in the story is that he becomes a pawn. Um, my kids have been learning to play chess. And typically on Sunday afternoons, when they get up from naps, we take turns all playing chess. And they've learned about the moves different pieces can make on the chessboard. And the pawn is really the, the weakest, you know, figure. It's the weakest player on the board. It can be manipulated, but it only can do so much. And often it, with more powerful pieces, it, it gets taken out. And in this story, Barabbas, though he seems powerful enough to, to be involved in a rebellion, to be a revolutionary, to be a murderer, compared to the power of Caiaphas and the guy we'll meet in a little bit, Pilate, he's not that powerful and he gets manipulated and used. And ultimately, Barabbas goes free. He goes free and Jesus dies. In the story, and if you want to read it this week, you can open up the Gospels and read it. Jesus dies instead of Barabbas. Barabbas was in prison for murder. He was going to be tried, convicted, and put to death himself. But in the story, there's an opportunity for the people to say, Jesus or Barabbas. And as you saw in one of those passages, the people cried out, release Barabbas, give us Barabbas. So the people get Barabbas back and Jesus is the one who dies. In the story, Jesus dies instead of Barabbas. And so if you can imagine, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus is convicted 
on Friday morning, he's crucified. Friday afternoon. And it says in the story that, that there were two people on either side of Jesus. Part of me wonders if those two people were people who'd been involved with Barabbas in that same rebellion. We don't know. All we know is the spot where Jesus is, is the spot where Barabbas was supposed to be. But before we think too much about what it was like for Barabbas to maybe watch or know that Jesus is being crucified in his place, I want you to consider this thought. Not only did Jesus die instead of Barabbas, Jesus dies in all of our places too. The reason why this week is so significant, a holy week, the reason we call it Good Friday is because Jesus dies and takes the penalty that was ours. You might say, I can't believe that Jesus died for somebody as terrible as Barabbas. Jesus died for all of us. He died in all of our places. It says in the scriptures that the, the, the sin and the iniquity that was ours was put on him. And, and so if you're somebody who's familiar with this story, maybe you've been in church for a while, you've celebrated Holy Week before, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever considered that you're Barabbas? Have you ever considered that, that in the story, <laughs> you have a lot in common with Barabbas? That he goes on free and Jesus is crucified? That you get to be free because Jesus was crucified? This is what was prophesied hundreds of years in advance by the prophet Isaiah, who said, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him, the Messiah, Jesus, for the iniquity or the sin of us all. See, see, we may read in the narrative that Jesus dies in the place of Barabbas, but the truth broadly theologically is Jesus dies in our place too. Later on, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says, God made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's how the kingdom works. Jesus dies in our place. And, and the freedom that comes through his death and resurrection becomes available to us. So, so Barabbas is thinking, hey, if I lead this rebellion, if I murder people, if we overthrow the Romans, that's how we'll have power. But not so in the kingdom of God, not so in the kingdom of Jesus, not so in the movement and revolution that Jesus is leading, because according to the kingdom of God, power comes through sacrifice. Jesus sacrifices his life, and that's how we live. Jesus sacrifices his life, and we become free. Power in the kingdom of God isn't taken through violent rebellion and revolution. It comes through sacrifice. It comes through laying your life down. That's why Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Love, power, it's expressed through sacrifice. And again, I'll just remind you, this is still revolutionary today. In our world, if you want to be powerful, our world says, hold on to that, fight for it, get it, take it, however you can. Sacrifice? What? Yet that is the way, the revolutionary way of Jesus. And 2,000 years later, we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. It's so counter to our kingdom, the kingdoms of men, that power would come through service and sacrifice. 
And that's just why I want to remind you that if you're really reading the words of Jesus, if you're really exploring the way of Jesus, if you're really leaning into the kingdom of Jesus, what you will find is that it runs counter and revolutionary to the ways of this world. And if you don't get uncomfortable when you think about these things, I'd encourage you, you're not being honest enough. This challenges me because I want to hold on to my power. I, I want to hold on to my influence. I want to hold on to my authority. And Jesus says, no, lay it down. Don't be surf. Surf. Don't try to grasp at it. Sacrifice it. Again, the power in the kingdom of God works very differently than power in the kingdom of men. I mentioned there was a third guy we're looking at today. His name's Pilate. And here's the lesson we learned from him. Pilate, the opportunist, he shows us the outcome of living to preserve power and self-promote. Pilate's an opportunist, and he shows us what, what happens when we try to preserve our power and promote ourselves. A little bit of history about how Pilate ends up where he ends up. The emperor Tiberius is ruling over the Roman Empire. And within the Roman Empire, there's a figure named Sejanus who becomes a, a rising political figure. He, he gains a position just a few steps away from the emperor. And Sejanus uses his power to get his friend Pilate a, a you know, significant job in the empire as prefect or governor over Judea, the area where Jerusalem is and where Jesus is during Holy Week. Sejanus and his friend Pilate, who we're going to meet in a second, are both known as being anti-Semitic. They're incredibly anti-Jewish, which seems a little bit crazy for him to be in this responsibility over Jews. But we see in the days and weeks and months that follow just how bad Pilate is at leading these people that he hates. There's a number of mistakes that Pilate makes. One of those is that he brings this Roman stanchion all over Jerusalem, which the Jews consider to be an idol. It leads to a ton of problems and it weakens Pilate's power because his job is to keep the peace. Pilate also goes in and he steals money from the temple treasury, money people have given to be involved in worship, the Jewish worship in the temple. He takes that money to try to build a Roman aqueduct from the Mediterranean Sea to Jerusalem. Again, it causes tons and tons of problems. Later on, Pilate sends Roman soldiers into the temple where they kill Galileans while they're worshiping. And the Galileans' blood mixes with the blood that's being sacrificed. And it leads to this massive rebellion and revolt. So that by the time Jesus encounters Pilate during Holy Week, Pilate's on thin ice. Pilate's job is to keep the peace, and there's been nothing like peace since he's been leading. And so when he's standing here in this moment with Caiaphas bringing him Jesus, and Caiaphas suggesting that he should release Barabbas instead, Pilate is conflicted. Because if you read in the text, as we're going to show you right now, Pilate doesn't find any reason that Jesus should be killed. He finds no law that Jesus has broken, no reason for him to be executed. But Pilate knows that he's on thin ice and he doesn't have the freedom to decide to do whatever he could do. Because in the days of Rome, when you're a leader at the level that Pilate is and you mess up, you have two options. Either they kill you or they let you kill yourself. So Pilate, he's conflicted about what to do. 
And so Pilate thinks, hey, I'm just going to really beat up Jesus really bad and then let him off the hook. And we see that moment in John 19, where it says, then Pilate took Jesus and he had him flogged. If you're unfamiliar with flogging, it's an incredibly gruesome way of beating a human. Uh, A cat of nine tails is used. It's a, a stick with leather attached and probably bone or glass. And the person is whipped 39 times. Those, those pieces dig into and tear open the flesh across most of the back of the body as a person is tied around a post. And, and many times people would die just from flogging. Jesus is flogged and he survives miraculously. <laughs> the soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, large thorns about this long that was put on his head. Those went into his skull, creating even more bleeding. They clothed him with a purple robe and they kept coming up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were slapping his face. Pilate went outside and said to the crowd, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, here is this man. So Pilate thinks, hey, I, I've, I've shamed him. I've beat him. I've, you know, made him think twice about creating these problems. Maybe this will go away. The problem is it doesn't. The people won't relent. They yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's when we see another side of Pilate. Not only is he conflicted, he's an opportunist. It's not believed that Pilate was an incredibly principled man in his leadership. Most scholars believe that he played all sides to try to hold on to his power. And and one thing that's true about opportunists is that they're not driven by values or convictions. They're driven by their own desires for self-promotion. Mentor of mine, Maxie Birch, is a religious historian. And in writing on Pilate, this is what he says. He says, opportunists are not people of conviction unless promoting oneself and obtaining power and control are convictions. As an opportunist, one can never afford true convictions because true convictions lessen one's ability to be flexible and therefore get in the way of advancement. And so what we see happen in the last week in this final day of the life of Jesus is that Pilate goes out with the crowd and he doesn't want to have Jesus crucified. That's not what he wants, but he wants to hold on to his power. His friend Sejanus back in Rome has been killed because he was corrupt too. Pilate no longer has any protection. He's on thin ice. He has no choice but to literally wash his hands of Jesus. Scripture tells us that he put his hands in water, he washed them, and then he dried them as a visual symbol of absolving himself of responsibility of what happened to Jesus. His, his idea was I could just wash my hands and somehow I'm no longer responsible for what happens to this man. It's a pretty bold, um, hubris-driven act of arrogance to think that you can just get off that easy when it comes to someone else's life. But one of the most significant moments that happens with Pilate happens a little bit earlier. In the book of John, John records for us a conversation that happens with Jesus, where it says, then Pilate went back into his headquarters. He summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, are, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, which makes even more sense when you think about his feelings about Jews. Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? What did you do to deserve all this, Jesus? And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You're a king then? Pilate asked. You say I'm a king. Jesus replied, I was born for this and I've come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate's reply, what is truth? He's an opportunist. He doesn't believe in truth. He doesn't believe in convictions. He doesn't believe in core values that are unchangeable and uncompromising. This is who Pilate is. He shows us what happens when you try to hold on to power, when you try to preserve power and self-promote. And and essentially what Pilate is showing us is this is what happens when your number one value is holding on to power at all costs. Later on, history tells us that Pilate made another mistake that led to another uprising, and eventually it cost him his life. But I want to encourage you with this image we shared a little bit ago, this image of washing your hands, because all of us have an opportunity like Pilate did to decide what we believe and what we will do with the truth of who Jesus is. Writer and theologian Alistair Begg, he says it like this. He says, each of us have to come to the point where we determine who is Jesus, why did he come, what did he do, and does it even matter? It will not be enough for us to try to fudge the decision off as Pilate did. There are no bowls available in the auditorium at the moment for the washing of our hands of the responsibility. There is no place for us to hide. There is no place that we can ultimately hide from God. And I would encourage you that if today you go, you know what, like, I don't know what I believe about Jesus. I don't know what I'm going to do with Jesus. I'm just going to kind of keep living my life and I'm just going to wash my hands of the whole thing. I think Alistair Begg has a point. All of us have to decide what we're going to do with the person and words of Jesus. And I'd encourage you that the way, according to the teachings of Jesus, to find the life that your soul longs for is not to hold on to your life. Jesus said himself, whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it in my kingdom. But whoever loses his life, whoever surrenders his life, he will find it. For what can profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Put another way, according to the kingdom of God, power comes through surrender. If you want to discover the life that Jesus has for you, the life that you were created to live by your creator, the purpose and identity that you were created with, it comes through unclenching your fists opening your hands and surrendering your life. Pilate shows us what happens, that if you cling to your life, if you cling to your power and you seek to preserve it and promote yourself at all costs, you will compromise your way into oblivion. 
There's not enough compromises you can make to hold on to it. Instead, if you surrender it, Jesus says, you'll find it. He'll put something in those open, honest hands that is truly fulfilling and life-giving. And again, in the story of Pilate, in the story of Barabbas, in the story of Caiaphas, we see that power works very differently according to the kingdoms of men then and now, very differently than it does in the kingdom of God. So before we close today, I've got a couple next steps I'd encourage you to take as a way to apply the lessons we learned from these stories from history. Here's the first one. Identify your biggest challenge with power. What's the hardest part for you when it comes to power? We've given you some contrasts in this message. We've contrasted the difference between service and compromise. That's the story of Caiaphas. The, the difference between sacrifice and violence. That's the story of Barabbas. The contrast between surrender and manipulation. That's the story of Pilate. But, but what's your biggest challenge when it comes to power? Maybe from the last 12 or 13 months, what have you discovered is your challenge when you feel powerless and out of control? Name that struggle. You can't defeat something you haven't defined. And so until you define the struggle, you'll never defeat it. Number two, determine which character of the last six weeks you relate to most. We've been in this series for six weeks. We've a number of people who've met Jesus. Their names are Andrew, that was week one. Nicodemus, that was week two. He was the religious type. The Samaritan woman is the person with this checkered past that was an outsider. Look at the story of Simon and the sinful woman in week four. Judas, last week with our friend Chris, and then Caiaphas, Barabbas, and Pilate. If you've been with us, which person's story do you relate to? And the reason why I ask that question is I want you to make sure that you're taking that message to heart and applying it. And if you haven't watched these messages, we encourage you to go on our website and check these out and figure out which person's story you relate to most. Here's the third next step. Refuse to trust in earthly power to accomplish kingdom purposes. What Jesus does here during his final week should not be overlooked. These were the sources of power in the day of Jesus. Caiaphas, religious power. Barabbas and Pilate, political power. And what Jesus does is he says, yeah, I recognize that those are the places of power in the world I stepped into, but I'm not going to use that kind of power. And I'm not going to trust in that kind of power to accomplish my purposes. This is what Jesus says again to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, My servants would fight. They would be here fighting so that I wouldn't be crucified, so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. I just want to encourage you that that over the last year, one of the saddest things I've seen is followers of Jesus who started to put their trust in earthly power as if God is going to advance his kingdom according to the way power works in, in this world. And I'll just tell you, the way that power works in the kingdom of God is not the way power works in our kingdom of this earth today. And we can't put our trust in those places of power, in those institutions of power, in those ways of power. That's not how the kingdom of Jesus is going to come because his kingdom is not of this world. 
So refuse the temptation to put your hope and your trust in a figure or an election or an outcome that that's the way the kingdom will happen. If Jesus ignored those folks and those ways in his final week, we should do the same thing too. And then number four, I want you to join us this week in reading the book of John. We've been reading through the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the road to Easter. If you have a copy of our reading plan, we're right here. We're getting ready to start the final part of John. But if you've not been reading with us, I don't want you to worry about going back to the beginning. I want you to start today. If you started today and you just decided to read three chapters of the book of John each day, Starting today, you could finish by Saturday. I made a mistake here. I forgot chapter 16, but three chapters here, three here, three here, three here, three here, three here, and three here. You'd finish on Saturday about 15 minutes a day. You could explore who Jesus is in his own words. And instead of just learning about how other people met Jesus, maybe you might meet him yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity in this season to experience you ourselves. My prayer is that today and each day this week, the people who are watching, they wouldn't just read or hear about people who met you 2,000 years ago, but they would meet you themselves. That they would have a real and personal encounter with you. And when they're tempted to wash their hands and not make a decision about you, I pray that you would bring this moment back to mind and remind them that they stand at a crossroads and they have a decision to make. Who were you? What did you teach? What did you come to do? And what does that mean for them? I pray that this holy week would be a time where people would meet you and experience the same thing that your followers did 2,000 years ago. Life-changing, life-transforming encounters with you that make them into the people you made them to be, introducing them into your love and your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness, your peace that their soul longs for. We pray that we wouldn't walk in the way of Caiaphas and Barabbas and Pilate, but we'd walk in your way and see your kingdom go forward through our lives. Thank you for this time, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.